0: You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at @DanielShortman Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure, The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production, the views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This week's guest on The Razor's Edge is Kareem Atia. Kareem is currently co-founder and chief technology officer of Ramp. Ramp is a spend management company, one that helps smaller businesses get more intelligence on their spending habits so they can save money and time. This stands in contrast to many credit card companies who are aligned towards more payments and more transactions, and we talk quite a bit about the distinction between an interchange-powered business and a software one. Kareem also shares insights from his time working at Capital One which happened after the credit card company bought his previous company, Paribus. We also talk about the fintech ecosystem in general. Ramp is a New York-based company, at least ostensibly, and launched its product in February 2020, so we get into the ins and outs of the company's experience in the pandemic and how Kareem thinks things will shake out for their union square office and the market in general. Ramp is one of the fastest-growing startups out there, They announced a fundraise shortly after we recorded this episode. And this is a fun conversation. A couple quick notes. We recorded this on February 3rd, so that's where some of the Robinhood references come from. Kareem says the company launched its product in February 2019 at one point, but I believe that's a verbal typo for February 2020. For positions, Kareem disclosed a long Shopify position, Akram is long Twitter and PagerDuty, and I am long PagerDuty. Lastly, big thank you to Roman Rubinstein and Trudel VMan for leaving us very kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you both. We really, really appreciate the support. Okay, let's get rolling down the ramp. Heyo. Kareem, welcome to the Razor's Edge. Good to have
1: you on. Thanks for uh, having me, Daniel. Good to be with you.
0: So give us a little ramp is. In the payments I associate in payments spend management, but give us a little bit on ramp. I know you guys have had done quite a bit of fundraising over the last year, it seems, and so just give us a little bit the two or three minute pitch on what the company is and where you guys sit and people's workflows
1: sure, yeah i w- I think spend management is is probably the right descriptor if you want to go for for something short, but Really what we're trying to build with Ramp is the cockpit for finance teams. So you think about like all the tools that you have access to today as a, either a business owner or a, a head of finance, and it's a mess. Like it's there, you got your card, you got your typical like bill pay solution, you're doing your books on QuickBooks and just making sense of all of it gets extremely complicated. And our, our view is that th- these teams deserve better and and there's a way through uh, I and mean, yes we started started off with the card, and a lot of business spending today is, is is going on cards, but our view is that over time we want to help businesses understand all of their all of their spending and not not just what they're spending on cards so they can make better decisions. It starts with giving them the right dashboards and, and tools to get their work done more more efficiently and over time, uh, the hope is that we can actually take a lot of the cognitive load of of making complex decisions and make those a lot easier and smoother for them so you
0: start you started with a card what we had a, on a, i don't know if you heard a few weeks ago we had on rami asaf from zbuni and he talked about their journey you know they're based in dubai but their journey is we get in the door with sms links to check out and then we offer the full suite do you guys view the cards like
1: is that a little yes. bit of the story yeah absolutely i think uh Part of the reason we were, were excited to, to, to start Ramp is we've actually had I spent two years before that at, at Capital One. So we had sold our, our previous company to Capital One. And while Capital One is just an incredible credit card company and have done a fantastic job on, on, on marketing and, and just a good understanding of risk, I think one of the, the, the things that they missed and along with the other incumbents is that you have the opportunity to create a, a ton of value through just good product and, and software experiences. And the way we, we approached our business is that we look at the card and, and, and interchange as a fantastic way to, to, to monetize. But most of the value that we're creating and the way that we're uh, competing is on the quality of our product and our, and our software, not on points and, and rewards and, and uh, uh, just spending a lot of money on marketing.
0: Yeah, I guess that's, I mean, that instead of being a payments focused company, where you're winning on, like you said, the interchanges and all the sort of back and forth there, you're more positioned now as a spend management software company. I mean, it's a SaaS provider essentially, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. Our view is a lot of what you you get with your card is just table stakes, right? Like the uh, fraud protection, the ability to make transactions quickly, like the the relatively high limits, like that's all just table stakes. And the differentiation in in our view is is a lot more... uh, Interesting when we're 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 building product experiences that just save companies time and money as opposed to just giving them rewards for spend, and it aligns the incentives better. At the end of the day, like if you ask, even if you ask like consumers and cardholders, like what could your 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 card do better or or more for you? Like what are your biggest worries? What do you care about? People will just tell you they want more money in their bank account, not that they want more rewards or or more points. Uh, So this is where we're focusing our, our efforts and energy. Like how do we make sure that these businesses are operating efficiently not spending more than they need to and really stay stay around for for the long term we don't think it's a good idea to just incentivize spend to rewards essentially
2: but the other end of the what's the startup brex where you like you get seven times on uber or three times at airbnb this rewards for that which can yeah. be i guess no a little confusing and at the same time like i think we're at that juncture now today where is that really a carrot for a merchant or for a customer these days?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Look, I, th- I think Brex has done a, just a fantastic job, just giving access to, I guess, early stage startup founders who didn't have access to, to, to cards before and needed something to get like set up and running quickly. But I think the the the, the point, the biggest point of, of differentiation is our view is as businesses get bigger, their needs change, like rewards is just not enough and getting a card quickly is is nice, but that's also table stakes. So really the the biggest differentiator and the way that we're trying to position ourselves is that like, we're here to help businesses grow and and we we find a lot of product market fit in in the slightly larger segments than your typical, like early stage startup. It's like at some point a company needs to hire someone to own finance. That person's incentives is to do their, their job as well as possible. Make sure the business is well run. They know where the money's going. It's not to maximize points in Uber or Lyft or, or hotels.
0: So your market is essentially, it's a little bit removed from early stage startup. It's a little more established or potentially SMB or do you guys even, I mean, I know it's early days for the company. The company was founded in 2019 or...
1: That's correct. Yeah. We got started early 2019. And yeah, no, you're you're right. I mean, we are going after larger customers than your typical guess, startup or SMB. So for the most part, we we call it mid-market internally. Uh we think our, our sweet spot is companies that are like larger than than 25 employees. But at the same time, like we yeah, we will have businesses joining our ramp when they're smaller. And usually these are the businesses that sort of expect to 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 grow very quickly and want uh one solution that can support them throughout. But most of our product thinking is, is to solve the problems of companies that are like 25 plus. I think 25 to like four to 500 is, is probably our sweet spot.
0: Yeah, there's probably something nice about selling into the finance department too, because they tend to be, first of all, it really f- probably forces you to get the UX and all the compliance right because they're not as technical as selling into developers. And they control the purse strings right and so like they're gonna i i remember w- i worked at seeking alpha and there when we were switching subscription softwares it was very much a finance department's decision and not a product team decision and so i imagine that's a similar
1: go to market absolutely treatments. i mean their jobs have gotten more complex and their tools really hadn't gotten any better like you think about how software is being purchased today it used to be that you've had a, you used to have everything go through like a centralized procurement team, and in some at some large companies, it's still the case. But the reality is, a, a lot of individual teams need like cheap SaaS subscriptions to get their work done, and and as a yeah, result, you get own, like buy it on the card, exactly right. Like as as a result, like you get a a proliferation of different tools, different pieces of, of software that different people at the company are buying, and wouldn't you want to know if you're trying to say like get a Figma subscription that someone in another department already purchased a subscription for the whole company and has yeah, seats that they're not using. That's part of the sort of like clarity and control that we hope to give to finance teams so that they have a better understanding of what tools they're spending on, when they're renewing, whether they're spending more than they should, are they using all the tools that they've signed up for? And that just gives them peace, peace of mind.
2: It's very, it's a very, uh, what's the word, the developer driven story and uh, like for uh, PagerDuty, for example, which we've done a lot on, on here in the past, you know, their CEO, Jennifer Tejada, always the story when she tells it always starts with the, you know, we start in a small team and it may just be on a credit card. And then it's like somebody notices in, in the back office of finance and what's going on here and who, who who's spending what on this. And when I was reading about you guys, Kareem, and I was very, like, I was very curious and I wanted to ask you and because i've noticed it myself just lately with like you know subscriptions all over the place and particularly under covid i sign up for something and then i just don't even read it and and i actually went through a period where i downloaded a software i don't remember bill true bill or something to yeah. like go go find my subscriptions and and figure out like what am i actually paying for using and get an idea of it but you guys do point out that you do analysis immediately to, to save you money, which is you know I think the the goal of any uh, business when they're looking at their expenses, how often when they when they run through, do they notice that they have duplicated spend?
1: A lot a lot. I think. I mean, that's sort of like one one of the most surprising elements for our respective customers when, when when we speak with them is a lot of times, like they they think that they're doing like a fantastic job and they don't think that there's a lot of savings opportunity, and then they'll just experienced ramp and like within the first couple of days, like, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea that I was spending like $60,000 on project management software. Like, why are we using Jira and Asana and Linear? Let's cancel Asana. Right. (laughs) Well, then you you get like cascading conversations within the organizations. like, oh, are we using Asana? And then it's like the answer is like, no, we signed up for a trial and we just forgot about it. So there's definitely like a lot of like fat that we can help trim right off the bat. And and over time, like as people use their cards and teams change, we keep track of that, and and that that's sort of like working with the back in in the background, and and you don't have to worry about it.
2: Yeah, that's that's definitely. I mean, you're essentially financial analytics, really, as a, a, a from a lead engine standpoint.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, we we are to to, to backtrack a little bit on on um, on this one. Like, I, I think. We want to differentiate via like good product experiences and software. Our team is mostly engineers and, and, and product people and, and designers, and uh, as a as a result, we like obsess over finding engineering solutions to, to to business problems. Like, how do we save more time? How do we save more money? How do we help these people in in, in finance departments uh, get the control that they need to make better decisions for their business and. That's what we spend our time on. Not which uh, celebrity we're going to hire for next marketing campaign, or whether we should uh, get a box at the US Open and invite our our, our customers. Like if, if that's what you want, I mean, Amex and, and the big card companies have been doing that for years, and and it works well. But as a result, you're just wasting so much opportunity to really build a better product.
0: Where does the where did the whole emerge? Is this because of the subscription economy and the way that we're now interacting with almost everything but for businesses especially with software or is it because in your example of an amex or a bigger company even capital one their incentives are still around transacting and so it's not really because you guys are going ironically to a subscription model or what i don't know exactly how you structure Mm -hmm. your contracts but you guys are incentivized differently from payments oriented companies that want you to transact more like is that? Why did you guys have the opportunity here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it would help to go through a little bit of the the history pre-ramp because it'll give you a a better sense of like how we ended up with with this idea, with this team and and, and this approach. So we actually got started, my co-founder Eric and I, in 2014 when we started a company called Parabus. And what Parabus did is is we, we realized that Around that time, like e-commerce companies, Amazon being the the biggest one of them, were using data to their advantage to price items as efficiently as possible and try to like squeeze out as, as much margin as as they could from their customers. So, they started dynamically adjusting the prices, putting uh, data science and engineering teams on the back end to figure out like what was the most that I could charge, Daniel. What was the most that I could charge, Akram? And those prices would change all the time. And our view back then was that There's just so much data available out there for the consumer and someone needs to sort of take the other side of this, like help consumers make better decisions based on the data that's available to them. So we built Paribus with the goal of helping consumers save money, right? So we would turn data into savings. We would track prices of items bought and automatically reach out to stores on their behalf to get them refunds. And it worked. It worked extremely well. I mean, within a year, we had crossed a million user mark. I think today it's, it's well beyond 10 million users. And, and, and that became what today is, is capital one shopping. So,
2: so you're like the legitimate Robin hood. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. fighting off the, the high frequency algorithms of amazon.com. I like the narrative. Sorry. Continue. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah that's uh
2: I mean, you're, not we, selling, we, you're not selling the payment for order flow out the back door.
1: <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that's exactly right. But I mean, that, that, that was the point. It's like the data's out there. Like we can monetize and we can give the money back to the consumers who own that data. And really, like we sort of applied that lens when we started thinking about a ramp as well. It's, I mean, both, both Eric and I became angel investors in a lot of companies. And we saw these same problems that consumer had pop up with companies and more and more as they became successful. I'm sure you've seen this many times, but you, you'll go to a pricing page of a SaaS provider, and you usually have your your startup plan, which is very cheap. You have a mid tier plan, which has like a pretty obvious price there, and then the enterprise plan will say "call us." Yep, and that is like one. This, of the This most was the beginning of my page of duty
2: page of duty short thesis before yeah. I was a bull.
1: Yeah, <laughs> sorry. So, I mean, I mean, it's frustrating, right? Like it's like, okay, how much am I supposed to pay for this? Is this cheap? Is this expensive? Like you spend a little bit of time on the call and then you get a 20% discount and you get excited. And then a month later, you hear that another startup get a 70% discount and you're like, what's going on out there? And, and part of the reason that like businesses cannot make these decisions is because sort of no one is looking horizontally and, and, and having their back and, and helping them make the optimal decisions for their business. So... We, we sort of had that same epiphany where, well, wow, there's a massive opportunity to help businesses make better sense of their data. Like, there's no reason I should spend like hours on Expensify after having made expenses, like telling Expensify like what I bought and what exactly this was. I mean, this is all in the receipt already. Like, our like the credit card should be able to to tell you that. That's yeah. I mean, that's sort of how we got started. Like, let let's solve these problems. Like, this just doesn't make any sense. That's a great origin story. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Just quickly on Capital One, just I I was scanning as we were talking, because they've got, they also have Wikibuy, which I know I get thrust in front of me as a user. So Paribus is there, whatever you may not, but they're like all integrating all these things to help align with the consumer a little bit more, but that hadn't been done for small business.
1: Yeah, so actually, it's funny you mentioned Wikibuy. So, so Wikibuy and and Paribus is sort of like the, the same team today, which is Capital One and and Eric and I were actually very involved in the uh, I guess the acquisition and and, and uh, just bringing the Wikibuy uh, folks on board. So that team okay. today is is one team, and they're the team at Capital One that is I think doing a just a fantastic job building a consumer product that helps consumers get a better understanding of like how much they should be spending when 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 shopping online and, and making sure that they get refunded when. Price if something drops.
0: Do you have a sense of a sort of reaction to your reaction? Like, there's always sort of a thesis antithesis here of Amazon rolls out dynamic pricing, somebody figures out the Paribus model, and now, like, do you do you anticipate that at all? Like, I guess I'm. How do you anticipate business spending? evolving based on this that whole entry price thing you think is that going to diminish because there's going to be more transparency or is that a goal or like how are you thinking about where this goes as the next two moves in the chess game
1: that's a that's an interesting question so i i, I think SaaS companies and, and and just vendors to let me backtrack a little bit so i i think a lot a lot of that like lack of Price price transparency is 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 uh, usually a, a result of not knowing how much they should or or, or can charge or not having a good handle on on their business model, and I, I suspect that it, it results in a lot of time spent and wasted in, in negotiations and, and, and conversations that could be happening a lot faster if the, the price was transparent. So, in a way, like I, I do think that like we will help our businesses pay less on average than what they're paying today, but we'll also help the vendors have a faster sales cycle. And I think there's a lot of benefits from that. Like you're, whenever- You're you, saying you're, I mean,
2: you're you're reducing the friction because the, the, the nature that there's, I guess, let's call it, uh, there's some apprehension that exists when you're trying to come up with how you want to price something because you don't want to underprice it. You don't want to overprice it. Because you're locking someone into a subscription, and then you potentially have an un- unhappy relationship if you go either way in, in in either
1: extreme. Exactly. I mean, you're right. It's it's all about reducing friction. So look, and and, and like it's it's competitive out there for SaaS vendors as well. Like, wouldn't they want to know that they're overpricing or underpricing compared to their competitors? I mean, they they spend a lot of time and do a lot of research, and they still don't really know very often, like how much negotiating leverage they they have versus their their competitors, so I think just reduction of friction and, and adding transparency will just speed up the sales cycles for the vendor that actually have a great product out there will probably help us weed out the ones that just overcharge for for a terrible product and it should be better for for everyone in the long term
0: there does seem to be for all that the bigger companies have left this gap and there was an opportunity to solve this problem. It does seem like there's a, you know, when reading about Ramp, you read about a few other startups, you've already mentioned, I think Brex at some point, or somebody brought them up. What, what do you see as the landscape right now? What do you see as how companies are gonna differentiate themselves going forward? Like, how do you see, you guys have raised a decent amount of capital, like there seems to be capital coming into this sector, so,
2: or this. Okay, question number one, would you describe yourself as FinTech?
1: Sure. Yes, I mean, in the sense that we are, we are broader, broader, broader industry. I think, I think, I think fintech is is, is fair for sure. But I, I, uh, I mean, I I definitely see ourselves more. Uh, I mean, th- the way we look as a company and the way we operate is, is probably closer to just your, your your typical software company than it is to a, a typical financial services company. So,
2: so uh, in five years, well, would you look? Would you look more like a concord, potentially in your space, or would you see it going in, in the lines of something like? I mean, I don't know what would be the other extreme, like a square. I guess I don't know.
1: So yeah, I mean, Square uh, Square is a, is a fantastic company, and and uh, I admire a lot about them. Look, I, I think the the company that we 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 look at and admire the most in, in this space is probably Stripe. They've have this just fantastic blend of yes, they monetize on 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 transaction, and they're very much like a financial services company in in, in that sense, but. Like at the end of the day, they, they operate very much like a, a product and engineering driven company, right? It's run by engineers. It's uh, a lot of the the, 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 the thinking and, and uh, time spent goes into just building better like APIs and, and better developer experiences and, and, and better experiences for the end user. Now, where we're, where we're different is that like Stripe is sort of building the, the infrastructure and, and, and the pipes for everybody and they're doing a fantastic job at it. Uh, we're really trying to uh, build the operating system or, or, or the cockpit for like the, the financial or the, the, the heads of finance of of, of growing businesses. So uh, we are operating in a sort of complementary spaces and, and actually think that there's a, yeah, I guess I'll stop there. I'm r- rambling a little bit.
2: So if you were to think about competitors right now, just like lay of the land, you know, uh, we we brought up Brex earlier and, and yes. I mean, you you and I have discussed, uh, I'd actually written about them when I was writing about the broader space in 2018 as kind of an example at the time of what I viewed as <laughs> the excess then. But Brex was interesting, you know, it was like the Cinderella story, Y Combinator, kind of, you know, quick head start to onboarding. I kind of viewed them within the context of the ecosystem around Mm -hmm. why Combinator and startups had grown so large that you actually now had, it made a lot of sense to create almost, you know, a a credit card slash financing arm within your own ecosystem. And like, it was big enough, you know, that the customer onboarding from that could be fed internally, but would you view them as a competitor
1: today? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the space is is massive. I mean, I, I would say like in terms of, of the main customers that that we speak with, the competitor that comes up the most is probably Amex. Okay. They still own, I mean, more than half the markets. You got Capital One solidly in, in second place. If we're just looking at corporate cards alone and between like Ramp, Brex, Divi, and, and some of the other smaller ones, like we're still a, a tiny fraction of all of that. But at the same time, like I, don't, I don't think that our, our competitive space is limited to the corporate card providers because we're offering tools and software that in some cases replace other parts of your stack. So a lot of our customers have told us that they don't need to use Expensify anymore now that we power like, direct reimbursements via Ramp. In many cases, like you don't need to use Concur or an Oracle or, or, or something like that. No, to you're, just power- you're knocking
2: into the accounting expense management exactly. area. Yeah. Exactly, so um,
1: so like mid market
2: mid market ERP essentially.
1: Yep, yeah, totally right. And look, I think we're we're if we're doing our job right, I think it should also delay the need for heavyweight like procurement software and, and procurement tools. So you may not want to sign up for a Coupa very early, and and Ramp can can support you throughout your your purchasing journey as well. So. There are a lot of opportunities that sort of like are not directly tied to the corporate card, but are very adjacent, and and we think that the combined market is is massive.
2: So essentially, riding this the the long tail of as you pointed out, let's call it the uh, organizations in the in the twenty five to five hundred employee range, where you don't like it doesn't really make sense to get these other tools, and at the same time that you you built something more native, better user experience for that type of customer.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I mean, that's, that's where we're starting, understanding their needs extremely well. And as they grow, we're, we're growing with them. And the plan is to uh, keep going up market and, and keep supporting larger organizations. Like I, I think it's, I you mean, know, I'm sure you see it with other tools, but like it's sometimes funny that like the, the smaller, more nimble companies have access to, to better tools and, and better interfaces than, than the large companies. And, and usually it's a result of inertia, but often these large companies have like such complex needs that the nimble startups like haven't caught up yet or or been able to satisfy those needs. And we, uh, we could talk about like Slack as being a fantastic example. yeah, your uh,
2: integration with Slack. Explain that by the way, we're super huge Slack fans on here as, as you probably know.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Slack is really changed the way we, we work. I think like there, there's, uh, I mean, I can't really remember what I was using before Slack. I think we were probably on like Skype chat rooms or or something like that.
2: IRC, Messenger. (laughs) Messenger, (laughs) BlackBitBPM.
1: That was probably even before that. But like for for a while, like when we're starting our first company, like in in 2014, it was I think Skype chat rooms and and they're terrible. It was a combination of like Skype and email and Slack comes along and just changes everything.
2: I can full on claim that I was never a Skype user.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: I barely ever used it. I barely ever before? used it. I mean, I what you know, I was, I still had an AOL Instant Messenger account. I think I remember at that point. And then it was like BBM. And then I was like a BBM zealot. Like I refused to tolerate WhatsApp or anything else from a messaging standpoint. And I don't think I really like video chats. I just, I, I never really got into it till, I mean, like till now. So like the occasional, like, you had to like bend my arm backwards. I would get onto a, a Skype call once in a blue moon.
1: <laughs> so were you one of those Blackberry holdouts and, and kept your Blackberry cousin? Uh, yeah, totally. As you could? With that, I mean, like,
2: I, I, I resisted the iPhone simply on that. I was like, come <laughs> on. <laughs> Please. This thing is going to last five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember I had a friend I had gotten WhatsApp. He's like, look, you get WhatsApp, you put it on your BlackBerry, you can talk to me on your iPhone. I was like, listen, dude, just go get a BlackBerry. Enough of this iPhone nonsense.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, my iPhone sort of managed to do that a little bit, just stick with this slight nudge of having a blue bubble or a green bubble, right? It's yep. so funny that just so many people are just getting iPhones just to get access to iMessage when really like the experience is, is mostly the same. Like it's, it's, uh, it's a different color bubble. But So back to Slack and, and our Slack integration. So like our, our view, like the, the thinking with our, our Slack integration is, is uh, again, around like sa- saving time, right? And spend a lot of time thinking about how different businesses do their work today. Like what is their workflow? How do they get things approved? And what we heard over and over is like, oh, well, I'll just Slack this person. I'll send them a message and I'll make sure that they see it. And, and our, our view was that we should just go to the tools that they're already lose, using and they love and, and make sure that we integrate fully with them. So. We built a lot of our approval workflows and reporting capabilities so that they integrate fully with Slack. So if you're running a small team and someone needs a one-time card to make a purchase, like you can get you can see that request on, on Slack and approve it right there and then. And as a result, you just have much faster cycles. You're able to make decisions faster. And, and yeah, and our customers have been uh, uh, loving it. I mean, it's it's surprising how like small integrations can. Really change and, and uh...
2: I mean that's definitely something I I would say in software from an external observer standpoint that early on I underappreciated as much. If you build native from the ground up versus let's say incumbents, and something is has high velocity adoption, like let's say a Slack as a work tool or anything that's you know really picked up or gained. If you integrate with that natively from the start and you make it seamless, and and I guess the word is delightful for the user, you're very difficult to stop.
1: Yeah, no, I t- t- totally agree. Part of the reason why we, we are sort of a- engineering driven in many ways. So like when there's an opportunity to work with, just build a quick integration, work with the tools that our business is already using, like we, we jump on this opportunity. Like I I think part of what a lot of early customers loved about Ramp is just like deep integrations with the the different accounting tools and and providers. Like it's sort of, like QuickBooks has mostly won that war, right? Like for small businesses and and mid-market size businesses, like everybody's on QuickBooks. And if you don't integrate fully with QuickBooks and make that experience seamless, you're going to have a hard time winning over businesses that just work with accountants that have been like running on QuickBooks for years.
0: Quickly, are you guys do you guys have any Teams integration? Or is that on the roadmap?
2: We should not speak that name. <laughs> Slack was bought out. I think we're
1: <laughs> we're the clear. I've I've actually like, I've never used Teams. And the only people I know who have are at big organizations where these decisions were sort of made top down. So I'm not I'm not opposed to teams. Like I I think they uh I mean. I'm sure they learned a lot from Slack on and, and, and how to build uh, good good experiences. And look, and I think as as we go up market and support larger customers, I, I think we'll probably want to integrate with Teams for sure.
0: Yeah, that was just a revision of the six months in 2020. Well, where... Look, that just
2: tells you that the the hipsters aren't on Teams
0: <laughs> and they're <laughs> using Ramp
2: and they're using Slack. While the top down there corporates
0: go. they go with Teams
2: because it's cheap and. Already well, the video the video was a big, thing, a big thing for them during COVID. And speaking of COVID, I think, uh, I think that's something that, that would be interesting since uh, you're a founder during COVID and we've been doing a lot of this. What were you thinking before? What were you thinking after? How do you manage a yeah. business? And I guess in your case, if you could just kind of like walk us through pre-COVID, what were your plans for the year? What kind of what were you guys focused on? And then like COVID hits and then take us from there.
1: Yeah, it's definitely been a very interesting journey for us. So we we actually launched in in February of of 2019 officially. So there was uh, somewhere around like one month before everyone went into uh, lockdown and we went remote for, uh, I guess we didn't know how long it was going to be at the time. So so pre-COVID, I mean, a lot of excitement. We were a very small team at the time. We were about like 15 or so people and it was all geared towards launch. So everyone was focused on launch and launch was... Going to be the time that we are we're we're out in the world and we're sort of seeing the reaction of customers that we didn't have a connection to. So we had a few uh, customers on the platform before and had been testing for a couple of months, but it was just very interesting for us to see like what the reaction of the world was was going to be to our product. And uh, we launched in February. We get a huge spike in in signups and early signs that like okay great like people want this. People want a spend management solution that helps them save money, save time. We are onto something there. And then March comes along and I don't remember exactly. It might've been like the first week of of March when like the S&P was down something like 15 or or 20%. Bill Ackman was on TV crying about how uh, Hilton was going to go under and and it was the end of the world. Well, he was making like $2 Yeah, (laughs) billion.
2: We're all going to die, but I'm getting rich. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that was yeah, there was a pretty in, in, insane um, period of time. But like, look, I mean, we had just come out of like a a pretty significant fundraise. So we actually felt good about our, our our position, right? Like we had the capital. Well, financially,
2: you guys were were, you know, you had you had runway, you weren't thinking about lights off, layoffs stuff like that. You're about to launch. Exactly. Right. you so like not question, you're,
1: you're, no pivot concerns. That's exactly right. So the question was really like how fast do we want to grow and does that change our headcount plan? And two, uh, because we're a fi- financial, I mean, we're, we're, we're a FinTech, like we had, there's an element of, of risk to the decisions that, that we're making and the customers were onboarding. What do we want to change in risk? Right? Like that was a, a, a big question and, and it was all hands on, on deck at the time to try and figure out like from first principles, what we thought the effects were going to be on different industries when you had the obvious ones, like, hospitality and and tourism and and hotels and and all of that was was perceived as high risk very early on but some were not obvious like that what were like the second and third order effects of that like their suppliers all the other businesses that may be affected and we basically built a our risk model in that period and and in a way i think it's made us like much much stronger because of it we've seen Low single digits bips and, and losses in 2020, when Amex had like 190 bips, and and some of our, I guess, more more modern c- competitors had big losses that were even higher than that. And and then just to give it a couple of months. So like April May, we we felt very good about like the the risk models that we have, the types of customers that were signing up, and even though we we were like relatively restrictive on on who we approved, we were just very like happy with the growth that we're seeing i think our, our biggest i guess su- positive surprise was that like i think initially there, there was this expectation that like most corporate scan, spend would be TNE, and and really for a lot of the, the customers that we ended up ended up signing up like the experience was so good that they ended up putting a lot of their operating spend on our cards and, and putting their ad spend on our cards and and they were uh, very excited at the speed with which they could just like onboard more employees like give them cards let them operate quickly at a time where like Amex customer service lines were completely flooded. So
2: that's an interesting angle. I didn't think about that, by the way, yeah. because everybody dealing with the, the congestion, let's call it of uh, travel and related uh, rescheduling and spend and whatever that like that. I remember people complaining about stuff with Amex. Yeah. So that's uh, an unintended consequence. Yeah, that's pretty cool.
1: And I mean, look, I mean, look, looking back at 2020, I, even though like we, we probably like to just slow down our hiring a little bit in, in, in uh, around March, like we've still, like, say, like the, the team has four or five acts. So we're about 70 people today. And we've grown wow. our, our top line like 6,000%. So.
2: All right. So good. Had... there's a lot of questions we're going to want to ask you there then. Yeah. So you went from 15 people located where? All in New York. Okay. So Manhattan, office location in Manhattan, physical office space. Correct. Yes. Okay. And you guys, typical startup, like, is this uh, like Silicon Valley? Like the show I'm saying.
1: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I mean, we did not... We, we we did start in our apartments, but not for not for very long, and we did not I'm operate out of a garage. There, there, was, there yeah.
2: was a good uh, comparison lately, you know, with the GameStop stuff. To like, you know, hey, hedge funds do this all the time. We watch billions. No, yeah. so I mean, uh, <laughs> the the so the analogy as far as like your standard New York startup, Union Square, 15 people, the team kind of physical, like you know, physical presence working together, open space environment. I assume. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Okay.
1: I mean, COVID hits, and we're like, okay, let's just uh, work from home, and and we'll we'll figure it out. And fast forward a couple of months, like I couldn't even tell you where most of our team is located today. I know some have decided to move down to uh, to, to Florida. Some are on the West Coast, and I'm pretty sure there'll be. A, a, like, I mean, I'm, I'm I'd be surprised if, if things get back to uh, any employees the, the like make it to the Maldives. Thing is is (laughs) anyone in some
2: is anyone in some cabana somewhere just you know sipping mojitos all day while while they're while they're engineering
1: there is definitely a time period where i was in europe while the person i was chatting with was in hawaii so that that's good be a great time zone zone, daniel
2: and i once did a podcast when i was in hawaii that was a very interesting experience
1: (laughs) that's right i
0: forgot we also had to do one with australia which was that's a Australia, Europe and the US, tough straddle, (laughs) but you're, so you're, you said that you don't know where they are now. So you're probably not anticipating reorganizing the office anytime soon.
1: No. So look, I I think we're, I mean, there's definitely, we're definitely going to want to have a physical presence and a physical office in, in New York. Now the question is how big is it? Where, when, what's the right setup? Those are all things that we're we're still trying to figure out like I, I think if in the current environment where we're very happy with our setup, I think people are being extremely effective remotely. a lot of things are, are working very well, and we still have like our, our our office for small meetups and or whatever there's a need to to do things in person. I think it's just going to be interesting to see the, the game theory of it when the large tech companies and and, and tech recruiters decide that they want to they go back to the office or, or do things a certain way, and how that affects um, new grads and, and how they make they make their decisions. Right, like part of what was very attractive for for new engineering grads about like a Google or a Facebook is sort of the ability to be like on that massive campus, meet a lot of people, learn from them. Yeah, it's like college. Exactly. It, it felt like a, it's like perfect continuation of of college, and I don't think that we can ignore that. So, like, I'm I'm very interested to see like how new grads start making their decisions, what they think about as, as being very important. And I suspect, look, it's a certain element of just like mentorship and, and being able to to, to meet with and, and learn from like leadership of, of companies is important. And uh, if we're not able to provide that remotely, I think most companies are, are just going to have a, a hard time attracting and, and retaining talent.
2: So when you when it comes to hiring at, at the scale you guys have done in such a short time period, is this something you think you would have been able, one, to do without remote? Because you're talking forexing in, in a Manhattan in less than a year. I think even that would have been challenging for any startup.
1: You're right. I actually haven't thought about that. I mean, there's also, I mean, as you were speaking, there's, uh, I was thinking about like interviews as well. Just the ability to interview so many people across the U.S. so quickly without having to, like, switch rooms or have them fly over and figure out scheduling yeah it does it does make hiring faster and i think it, it does keep the bar very high because you're, you're able to meet with and speak with uh, candidates that are like all over the country and in some cases all over the world and a lot faster and quicker
2: yeah it's definitely a much more competitive landscape you know, talent. you you're. you're there's, it's no longer the uh, what do you want to call it? The the big fish, small pond type of thing. You open really things up into the ocean, essentially speaking. Although, if you're in New York City, that the, the ten the view tended to be that like you know that's where the sharks swim. So <laughs> you can make it there. You can make it anywhere. <laughs> but I I love New York. I'm 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 not leaving. I mean, it, it's fantastic. It's uh, there's no place like it. But if you think about it from that standpoint, when you hire new employees under COVID, do they have to be geographically tethered at all or not? Like, what, like, so like, let's say you hire a hotshot engineer from Wisconsin. Is that person planning eventually someday of moving to Manhattan? Or is that person planning on moving to a hub of fellow employees in Miami? Or is it going to be like, you know, are we going to have a situation down the road where I mean, you've seen the movie, uh, Office space.
1: Yeah, of course.
2: You know, when they move, they move what's his name down into like, they keep moving his office. Yeah. Like, does it, does it like end up with like, there's like one guy in the basement that nobody forgot about and and he's, he's upset about his, his stapler? I mean, or, or are companies actually, because you're essentially born like right into this environment as a business, you know, you launched like a month before the the pandemic. So for, you know, I I know talking to people at, at large corporations and I'm sure, you guys have discussed this a lot with with your advisors and, and you know with with colleagues from other places, but uh, it's kind of like you you eventually have to make a call on on physically where like you know the the company is going to be classifying
1: you. Yeah, I uh, look there. There's some things that that we think we figured out. Others that I don't think we're in a rush to figure out, frankly. So in a way, like. What we have right now is working very well. And I think part of it is we've leaned into making remote work very well. So we, we spend a lot of time on making sure that onboarding goes right. We spend more time than we ever have just writing things down, like taking notes, having robust documentation about what the company's processes are, like where to find different resources. So we we're certainly like trying our best and leaning into making this a, a good work experience, but also a good I mean, really it's social experience. I mean, at the end of the day, like you're spending so many hours at work. Like today we're sort of forced to be at home, but like, I think once things reopen and, and people want to spend time outside and, and and they want to meet folks, like I think things will change. And I, I still feel like it's premature to make a complete prediction on on exactly how it's going to look. And I think given our size, like the, the game theory is important here, right? Like we, we, we're not like a, a Facebook or a Google, and that we can sort of set the standard, and and everybody will follow. And uh, we're gonna have to like adapt to like what the competitive forces uh, are. And, that is and, true. So, and 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 look, we we stay up to date with with what's going on, and we want to make sure that the, the the people we hire are excited and have some visibility into how how things may change. And it's been mixed, right? Like, there, there's some people that definitely want to move to New York when things reopen. And there's some people that are very happy being in Jacksonville and having a a, a lower cost of living and, and the ability to just walk outside in the sun. So uh, I think it's going to be hybrid, and I don't uh, know that it's a very interesting answer because I think most people think that we'll uh, we'll, we'll adapt as as we go.
2: That is true. I mean, uh, it's 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 definitely an unknown. You're right. I don't think anyone's arguing with the fact that we're going to have a hybrid environment. People are like, humans are naturally social anyway. So it's just that when you think about a business and the culture that develops around a business, yeah. you, you and like like you were pointing out, like new employees, like uh, a new class, like, like, you know, in finance and analyst class or whatever, they come in the college campus element. When you're starting out in your career, the networking you develop, and pr- pr- frankly speaking, the friends you develop too, in general, mm-hmm. your your social life uh, and your professional life are going to overlap at that point early on. They're indistinguishable, really, in some respects. That's where you like you look at what's happened with COVID for the you know the twenty two to you know twenty five year old, and you're like you know what what's how do things t- take sh- take shape for them because they bring a certain type of energy to any work environment they're in they're mm-hmm. trying to prove themselves they're trying to mingle they're trying to you know climb up the ladder immediately make a good impression when you've been in a place for a while or as you get older you're you, you, you're settled in certain ways right like you have your own network you don't care you're not meeting at new people at the same rate i mean i think back to when i mean i i did almost a decade as an expat so like i'm like expat lifestyle is Essentially speaking, remote work you know mm-hmm. and it's you' you're kind of in kind of uh that uh, let's say uh, adaptive environment from the start, you know you're just showing up in like a new place to different rules, you know, fish out of water type of thing, and I think that one of the interesting things about that when you when you are in that type of environment is everybody kind of wants to get along because you don't have people who are like. You know, I'm the natives, essentially, like the outsiders have come in type of thing. So the interesting thing about expat cities, whether it's Hong Kong, Dubai, uh, and even very international cities like New York, you mingle. It's, you know, 101 for that. Remote brings the new element where it's like I can kind of be in my own little bubble. Yeah, yeah, I think that's...
1: I mean the, the the mingling and and just providing opportunities for new grads and and uh, and, and people who are sort of like making it. I mean, it's first job is at Ramp. Really, like just meet people and and, and make friends is uh, like it's it's constantly top of mind. I think one thing that we've leaned into a lot, and I mean, you see a lot of startups do that, and, and it's not a secret. But like, we love like referrals internally. We think, especially in this environment, like being able to refer someone that you've gone to college with or you've worked with, who's excellent. And as long as they passed the bar, like it just creates this sort of natural connection that you've you, it's sort of like these pre remote pre COVID connection that you've you've had with somebody. And now that person is working with you remotely. So it sort of allows you to see a little bit more of of what's going on socially as well than you would, if you were, Sort of isolated in, in in your own bubble, so it, it's had like unintended, almost like just like positive effects. Just strengthen team cohesion. Just to have people from different groups, different teams, different departments, like just referring each other and, and and making sure that we're bringing great people into the company. So you sort of have, and and once you do that, like you have the the interactions that come naturally from the operating cadence of the company, like things like your. Weekly sprint planning meeting or the all hands and things like that. And then you separately have your, your interactions with your referral, who in some, some cases is a friend or an ex-colleague or or, or someone that you have like a, a connection to that's also separate from, from just the company connection. So that's been quite powerful and, and, and interesting as well.
0: What did you guys see during the COVID period as far as you mentioned earlier TE? spending, travel and entertainment going down and it going more into, op, you know, they're using their cards for operating expense to add. So like, what did you guys see? Cause you, you have that sort of being involved in payments, even if you're providing software, you have that ac- uh, vis- visibility into what's going on in terms of companies spending habits. And then also I, you're targeting that 25 to 500 range of client, but still there's, there's a lot of Liquidity out there, there's a lot of funding into companies, so I'm just curious trends you saw either in terms of companies' operating habits or things that changed over the year or types of companies that were succeeding or not succeeding like what were you what was your perspective being in
1: that yeah, so that was yeah that was certainly very interesting just looking at at spending patterns of our of our customers and our customer makeup has shifted over time and it's all over the map when it comes to like just industry today, but we're still at like low single-digit percentage in terms of travel spend. And when we look, I mean, we we launched in like February, March, so we don't have much data like pre-COVID. But when we looked at data that was being made public by like the the Amexes of, of of the world and like the the larger companies, T I and mean, E is close to like half of of corporate spend normally. I mean. We expect it to go back to at least like 30 or, or, or 35 as 35% as, as things go back to normal. So I think there's a fair bit of like tailwinds uh, as as they relate to just like businesses spending more on, on, on travel and going out that we'll, we'll, we'll start to see over the coming year or two. But at the same time, like you have businesses who've spent more and and, and done a lot better. I mean, e- e-commerce companies have done extremely well over the last period. I mean, you could see how, how well Shopify has done and a lot of the, the stores that are in many cases powered by, by Shopify, but have really figured out how to like, efficiently acquire customer run effective campaigns on, on, on Facebook and Instagram have had a fantastic year. And a, a lot of these businesses are, are also Ramp customers and we, we support them in, in, in their spend management needs. So. I think that's sort of like maybe like the two sides of the coin. It's like TNE has gone down, but like e-commerce has, has gone up so much that all in all, we're we're just uh, we we feel very good about where things stand today, and and I expect like TNE to to start picking back up uh, um, towards the the second half of this year, probably.
2: You think that at the same time that there's going to be potentially trade off on the uh, on the digital side? I mean, you know. I think about this a lot, obviously, from a stock market standpoint and an investing narrative standpoint. I mean, when I look at COVID winners, you know, you'll you'll hear people be like, "Oh, it's amazing that so and so has done this this well and this this and that." I couldn't have imagined it. And, you know, my response is, you shouldn't be able to imagine it. A pandemic happens yes. once a hundred years, but not. I I don't think I've seen a single person lay out a narrative and around. A post-COVID transitionary environment that could be almost as equally disruptive as COVID in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, the amount of money spent. I was just looking at, at the, the numbers yesterday on, on, on notebooks, up 45%, 30%. There's, like the, there's been a lot of stories around the automotive chip supply chain disruptions because the video gaming, uh, notebooks, uh, and essentially r- related stuff in the, those areas has eaten up that capacity. They took that capacity when when autos retrenched and canceled orders, and now autos are saying demand pick up, and you know the the capacity is just not there because well you know the, the the global supply chain isn't structured to support the type of uptick you saw from stay at home narratives around technological tools, right? So like I actually do wonder, and I don't know what your take is on this and whether you, like how you would how you look at this from a business standpoint. But for certain things, whether COVID was as good as it'll ever get as far as engagement, the time spent, and then in theory, certain elements of that from a business standpoint, like are kids ever going to be spending as much time on Roblox YouTube as they did in the last three months? Will I personally have spent as much time on Twitter as I did in the last 60 days? (laughs) Will, I mean, we we were discussing yesterday, a friend and I, that Trading volumes on on in the U.S. market were up 50% from December in January. Forget wow. the triple-digit gains, right? So like the the trading manias and all these things. So when you look at COVID and like like you were saying, like you did use the word for one second. I didn't I didn't step in and say you said when we go back to normal, all right?
1: Right. And there's that always that
2: there's always that there's that, that debate is what 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 the what the hell was normal and like what was the new normal? Then you have people like COVID didn't change things; it accelerated. What what we do know it accelerated certain adoption curves in digital tools, right? right. But where you sit, like, and, and an interesting thing that people failed with early on in COVID, this recession was five times deeper in a quarter of the time, right? Initially speaking with like the focus on the unemployment and whatnot. But personal savings search, Like you look at the average credit card spend of a consumer, it dropped 50%. And then you gave them, a, you gave a lot of them an income boost. So there's a lot of stuff where you guys actually sit from a from a business spend management standpoint. Like you said, like T&E, like you you've had a lot of companies where you go back early COVID and and going back to like GameStop and narratives around that. But you know people had a hard time understanding that GameStop would have been worse off if COVID never happened. Oh, yeah. you know? But like the initial knee-jerk reaction is that GameStop is worse off under COVID. It's like you have a pandemic that's horrible for a weak business. Well, no, they stopped paying as much rent. It was video game mania. It was collectibles novelty mania. Uh, they burnt less cash, actually. And th- that added a little legs. And oh, by the way, the, you know, the cost of, of of borrowing dropped through the floor. And everybody got, you know, injected liquidity. So do you think that for... That there's there's a potential just both just as you know a, a founder, but in general, in your own opinion, that like an e-commerce business. If I look at it, I would say that the narrative today on on a, on a great e-commerce business is that COVID accelerated e-commerce. But like I look at it, and I'm like COVID brought step function growth to e-commerce. But like if I go to the mall one time in the next twelve months, it'll be one time more than I went in the last twelve months. And if I eat out two times a week, consider like a DoorDash or food delivery. That'll be—I mean, I've eaten out a few times under COVID, <laughs> but that'll be significantly more than before. Now, yes, I'm still going to be using these tools, and yeah, I'm probably going to still order these certain things on Amazon. But if I do one discretionary purchase in a mall, or if I'm in New York and you know I'm walking down the street and and I, I walk into a store uh, and I pick up something, you know, in Soho or whatever. That's something that is a headwind for online digital sales. Like naturally, because in it, there's been a period, just a period now of three months, where my behavior went a hundred percent in the other direction. So nobody seems to think that. Well, I mean, we could have another dislocation where it's like, oh wait, what what the hell just happened? And I mean, I bring this up not from like a sell your stocks argument narrative, but from a potential of. If business spend is going to potentially change again in a manner that we just went through, and would that be kind of disruptive for for certain businesses? Is this something you guys have discussed, thought about, you know, the the angle around like, hey, we want to focus on this type of stuff going forward because we expect to pick up here. Restaurants are going to have a fantastic 2022. This is like kind of an area which will be interesting.
1: Yeah, I – I mean, the the acceleration point is 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 a uh, is an interesting one like I, I I think that the thinking is that like once you've gotten a taste for what it's like to order online and have gotten a taste for that experience, you're not gonna go back over the long term, like yes, you may be doing one or two purchases, but like most of your your purchasing is gonna be online, and that was gonna happen in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four anyway is just like happen sooner. And from that perspective, like I don't think it's like people like like you or me that have really affected this this trend. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's a I'm sure you do a fair bit of like buying on on, online and you sure you use Netflix and and Spotify and all these services. But it's definitely accelerated options for 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 people who just like still have hadn't gotten a taste of it. And and now like sort of can't live without it. even in, in my own behavior, like the one thing that I, I used to buy and store all the time was, was groceries. And I just find it extremely efficient to do it online now. And I, I just can't imagine going back to the grocery store. It feels like a, a massive waste of time. I'd rather spend it the, the extra time with, with the family or, or going out and having fun. So th- there's an element of that trend is creating time savings and those time savings will be spent on other things. But I don't think it's a zero-sum game. Like I think there are certainly like efficiency gains that, that we've gotten as, as as consumers from I'm talking about like e- e-commerce in particular that will wanna like there's just in some ways like I just feel like there's more time that has been more free time that has been created. And yes, a lot of that free time is gonna go from I don't know, like being spent on, on video games and watching Netflix and, and watching TV to probably like g- going out and, and going back to restaurants, which would be fantastic. But I think in e-commerce in particular, like I just don't see the the zero sum sumness there. And with businesses, there's probably going to be less spending on office space, but more spending on events and corporate retreats and, and, and things of of that sort. So again, I I just I don't know. I uh, I mean, it's hard to predict. You see, like you I, see my I,
2: point. I'm not disagreeing yeah. with you. What I'm trying to say is, if I stepped you, me, and Daniel from ordering. From going to the grocery store, you know Costco, physically, to ordering online, and we all stepped up to that in a three-month period because there was a lockdown. And a year later, you're comping against that that period. And Daniel's went back to shopping temporarily, maybe once a week. He picked up some f- his fresh vegetables uh, at at the store. My argument is that, of course. The future was going to be that you're going to do a lot of these things and, and automate it. Essentially, everything is boils down to automation. And if you can get more efficient and more productive and save time. But my point is, is that when you accelerate the future, what does it become? It becomes the present. And eventually the present becomes what? The past. So when we look forward, it, like you said, the, the free time element, I would say screen time, maybe, I don't know, next five years, a decade, I had no idea. but. I'm going to be hard pressed to think that like if, if I mean, I've maybe traveled 18 feet. There's another element where my lifestyle was actually very travel oriented. And if you think about uh, uh, COVID restricting certain elements and you look now at places like Florida, like Texas, people have moved down there and you think about a post-COVID environment, just kids being in school, I look at kids. Today and I see them in their in between my nephews and nieces like in between their, their classes, sitting you know playing games and in, in, the, in their break, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like you couldn't do. And I talk to people who are are day trading who they would not be able to day trade physically if they had to do any hybrid work because you'd be in a work environment where it'd be like, what are you doing? You're trading. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you're not working. Fair, fair. Right. So like when I when I think about COVID from from that sense. I don't look at it and I say that we're going to break the trend of going online. When I look at international markets, for example, from an e-commerce or, you know, as we said, we had, what's it called? Rami on here before, like you have places where they're complete cash economies. Like Mm -hmm. they're now just going from not using cash to doing credit cards. But when you look here, it's like, I wonder if like next year, this time people are going to be like, oh, I'm not really amazed by Target's e-commerce like uh, store sales right
1: you've made you've made like a a really interesting point in this that i've been thinking about i I don't know what to make of it i'd be curious to, to hear your thoughts actually but i think we are reaching some kind of ceiling in terms of time and attention spent on screens and as a result like we're i think there's more multitasking happening than ever before so like you're you may be like watching Netflix and you're on Twitter at the same time, or you're on Twitter and you're trading at the same time. And Correct. all these companies are looking at like engagement to time spent. And they may be making assumptions that like the time spent on Twitter is today is like the same as time spent on, on Twitter, maybe one or two years ago. But I'd argue that like the, the quality of that time has probably gone down because you're multitasking. So it'd be interesting to see like the, the effects of that. It's like, what happens when like all that attention starts sort of like overlapping, like does the quality of your time spent decrease? Does your experience actually decrease? Like what effect does, does that have? Cause I mean, at the end of the day, like the one thing that is just a hard limit is, is our time, right? Like there's 24 hours in a day, you're going to be sleeping for some time. Like at some point you're going to reach some kind of ceiling. And, and are we seeing like the, the early days of that today? Like, I I don't I, know. I mean,
2: a perfect example which we were discussing before was this clubhouse, right? Yeah. So the, the the crazy thing is, we, here we are having this conversation about, you know, will will there be maybe a dis a disruption in, in the transition narrative or the acceleration narrative? That's like a, call it a hiccup, even. But at the same time that, that 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 we're discussing that, like with COVID, in theory almost over in, in, in some people's minds. We've had this like audio mania that's crept up. And, you know, when you get on Clubhouse, like you're committing an hour, you know, like you're going to sit in there. You can't. It's not like Twitter where I can just hop into a feed, glance at something, hop out. I can be doing it, you know, with kids running around outside in the car moving like if I hop on and I need to figure out what room I want to get into and get some context. And then I have to commit time. And oh, by the way, if I'm going to be speaking, I need to establish an environment where someone's not going to come in and be screaming and yelling and whatever if I'm live. Right. Yeah. You don't want like some embarrassing moment to occur on uh, uh, on live audio for that's going to be recorded and replayed and reposted and whatever from now to eternity. Where do you find the time? Like that Chris Saka actually was on uh, a couple of days ago on Twitter. He's like, I'm not uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this, but I'm not going to throw shade at Clubhouse for anything other than the fact that where do you find the time? Like, yeah. And one of the things about Clubhouse, which, I, you know, I was discussing with a friend because. I am more on the Twitter spaces side of things now, even though I've used Clubhouse for a while, is I don't see necessarily where the super interesting people who are on Clubhouse, where you get in and like, let's call them the thought leaders who, who have been driving shows and bringing on guests. And which is like essentially, you know, what, what you're doing with podcasting, right? So no. when you take it to that step and you say, this conversation we're having here, why does anyone need to listen to this live mm-hmm. and you know like if if we added two more people you know we've done a couple of these with a few more people and you know when i listen to podcasts like i in 10 lifetimes i would not be able to listen to all the interesting podcasts that are out there that have been created under covid right it's yeah. just an overwhelming supply of stuff and you 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 have to choose so when i go back and i look at clubhouse and i look into live and i say well all these interesting people that like you you do like want to make their time free by the way well, you know, are they not going to be traveling and dining out and socializing with their friends, or is, or are they just going to be thought robots that exist on the web for, to sit, uh, you know, fill up places like Clubhouse the whole time? And that's what you get into when you look at Clubhouse. What does it, what does it remind me of when it's working well? A really good conference, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's fair. a really good conference. Why is, why is it so? compelling as live. Why is South by Southwest? I'm going to go eat some really good food. I'm going to socialize with some people. I'm going to be moving around. There may be some activities that I'm going to do, but like when you leave me in the room by myself, listening to Clubhouse right now at peak COVID. And when I say peak COVID, this is like, you know, we we did something on Netflix recently and there was like some data that came out and it was like, because of all these new streaming services, the likelihood to cancel Netflix has gone up to the highest it's ever been to 39%. And I was like, when that data came to me, I was like, what are these people smoking? Who is canceling Netflix now? I mean, okay, maybe in five months, maybe in three months, but who is canceling it now in, in, in like peak COVID winter misery? Like it's the last thing on my list. I'm like, oh, what should I get rid of today? Like and when you talk about expense management and duplicated spend, I'd be like, all right, Netflix definitely know they can raise the price another $5 and I'll still pay it. But newsletter number 22 that I haven't read or, or Barron's, which I just realized I'm paying for, the last nine months. And by the way, who doesn't let you cancel online, right? Oh, yeah. They make you physically call. It's those <laughs> things that fit in. So when you think about that and you step back and you're like, here we are discussing wh- where things could turn if people are going to travel more, or spend more on traveling. And like you said, there's like, I, I can open this clubhouse, but I can't open it in a non distractive environment. It's actually right. demanding my complete, total focus and attention. And that's where like the point you just made. Where these platforms, particularly in social media, and we talk about it a lot with Twitter and even Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, like when Elon Musk went on to Clubhouse, he was being rebroadcast live on YouTube. And I started thinking, like, like, what's the difference of not having the video there? There has to be a community that forms on Clubhouse to make it unique. Otherwise, why is this just not done on YouTube? And why is everyone excited about it? And oh, by the way, the interviewer didn't ask him any questions that nobody hasn't asked him before. So, like, are we literally like caged animals? Dying to expl- get out right now. It's been so bad that we've fallen in love with like you know sitting, uh, like having an audio chat, like it's the lunch room in high school. Sorry, yeah, I, went I, on a, I went on a rant there.
1: I, I mean, I I, uh, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is just uh, social FOMO, almost like oh, there's something exciting going on, in, in exactly. Not part of it. and exactly. That's the uh, best
2: way to describe it. Social right. FOMO.
1: And it, it used to be that like. You have to take a a car or an Uber or a taxi or whatever and and make it to the restaurant or, or go to the party or go to that conference. And now you just have to like press a button. But you're 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 right. Like it does demand a lot of attention. I frankly haven't found the time to uh <laughs> to spend on Clubhouse. Maybe the the only time I've had is when my uh wife wanted to watch something on TV that uh, like a TV show that I wasn't interested in. And I'm like, okay. I, I sort of want to do something well, else. Well, I mean, you, and, you're, you're running right. a
2: startup and you 5X to your employees in right. a year. So, I mean, I, I, I assume you're busy. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I'd rather, that, I'd rather there you spend go. that time I mean, with uh...
2: like, like Like Chris Saka on on Twitter, like you're making a very obvious point. Yeah. In the contrast with Spaces, like I've hopped on a couple of Spaces and there was one where we had a really good chat the other day with with actually a senior Twitter guy who we followed each other, never really chatted. and. He opened a space, hopped in, and, like, you know, we started talking about stuff that, like, is stuff we both tweeted about or commented on, essentially, and, like, we'd established an interest graph, related interest graph. Like, that to me was, was like, okay, I followed this person on Twitter from a a, a tweeting standpoint, and now we're actually having a conversation. I'm happy to chat with that person because we've talked about food or joked about food or some related stuff on, on Twitter. And then like, you know, I invited someone else in, he invited someone else I knew in. And like, that was kind of like essentially a meetup, actually, Daniel.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but yeah, it's
0: more of a social element, like, a, I mean, so a horizontal social element rather than taking a stage around and. Yeah, we built some street cred
2: it. and we we're both we're interested in like, but like we're willing to make the time in that type of environment to maybe have an extended ch- extended chat. But then I go into these like random rooms on Clubhouse and it's like multi-level marketing mania. And oh, yeah, like, you know, everybody's slinging something. But
0: there's I think, you know, to the to COVID question, because Karimi, we were talking earlier about interviews, for example, and how much easier that process like there's there is something with the Internet opening up opportunities, whether it's to record a podcast with people f- in three different locations or whatever else. and it seems to me like there's the there are bounds on the way you can spend your time obviously the way you, despite all the liquidity in the in the world right now there's still a limit on the money you can spend which is where from ramp's perspective i imagine at some point if travel and entertainment goes back to 30% something else is going to come down but it'll work out pretty well corporate spending is probably not going to go down on net even if the buckets change. But I think that I feel like that's, you know, and that's always the hard thing from the investing standpoint. Like some of these things will be, will be the sharp hangover effect because it just doesn't, Twitter may become more and more fun to use, but we're all sick of even uh, Akram as loud a Twitter bowl as anybody, Like you get sick of getting into conversations, getting into arguments, discussions, whatever else. There are only so many gifts that you can Post before you get tired of it. So uh,
2: you can go forever. Meming well. can never be stopped. <laughs>
0: to the
1: moon. To the moon with <laughs> memeing.
2: I mean, Elon Musk has established we are in a meme universe.
1: That's the new entertainment, right? It's been fun.
2: I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's replay. You know, we used to debate like corporate etiquette and now you got CEOs just memeing before their conference calls.
1: <laughs> so right. good, good luck say, to
2: anybody I'm, working at the SEC.
1: I'm, I'm enjoying watching this for sure. It's, it's a lot more fun.
2: I mean, w- without question, I would say that from from an investing standpoint, I personally think it's been very entertaining. But you've also got into the very end of it where there is that where it's like, the, the, is it entertaining, or is it almost making a mockery of it at, at some point? And that's where you get into like, I mean, I I I've been I've been a huge Portnoy fan, for example, in Barstool. Oh, yeah. Throughout all of COVID, I think he's I think he's just it's amazing what he's been doing. But then on the flip side, at the very end. You're like, well, what percentage of people are taking this 110% seriously? And that's where I think when it comes to people's money and savings and stuff tied to the market, once it turns into that, like traders, we want entertainment. Yeah. Like once you make it more entertaining for us, like, you know, when, when like two guys get on CNBC and, and they fight it out, you know, it's, it's like it's <laughs> like the schoolyard. Go all right, fight, fight, you know, <laughs> you know, but I mean, when you see. When you get on a clubhouse and you listen to the people talking about doji coin, and they're like, and the range of expectations are like, look, I've just got you know, I'm I've got my conservative portfolio of Bitcoin, and yeah. <laughs> I've got my like medium risk Ethereum, and then I've got Doge. my doji. Right? And my doji could go to the moon. I'm not gonna say put all your life savings in doji. Bitcoin, okay, that's acceptable, but doji. Wow. Doji, Doji could be something. Doji is like a 50 potential X, right? And it's like, and you're like, all right. I mean, where do they get to this stage? And these people, by the way, have a conversation that'll be like, look, the central bank is printing a ton of money, and you'll just be like, and I'll I'll, I'll just be amazed listening to these things, you know? And I'll be like, it'll go from central bank is printing money to I own Doji coin. So, are you guys are you guys dealing in crypto by the way over at Ramp? What's go, What's the story?
1: No, no, no. It's uh, wait. I, mean, I don't think it's crazy to have uh, corporates have some of their treasury in in Bitcoin. Like, I think that is probably a trend that's here to stay.
2: Well, I mean, look, the world's richest man put over a billion dollars of his balance sheet in it. Some of us will view it as as a distraction for from from you know that he's very good at doing you know every six months or
1: so. It could be, yeah.
2: But uh, I mean, it's it's you, you, this is not the first conversation I've had around this topic. I mean, I, I have a couple of friends who, even their their investors have been like encouraging them put a little bit in crypto. So look, diversification is is fine, and and like you know, store of value, store of value. But it's interesting when you think about it from a transactional construct, because is it something that is that something core to a business unless the business is like if, – if Apple wants to have a debate over it, okay. But if a startup – because I was having this conversation with a friend in a startup. I'm like, I don't, I don't see you, – you, the money you're taking in is money that's going to go to hiring people and growing your business. So the minute you're sitting there and you start thinking, do I put some in Dogecoin and some in Ethereum? As as my, uh, it's not
1: going towards growing the business. No, that's fair.
2: It's not going, but it's not, it's not the question that it's not going because it's going to be sitting there as cash anyway, right? But un, until you need it for something. But the minute it becomes a decision around whether or not it's generating that value, isn't it a distraction? That's the way I look at it. Yeah. You is. Know? And and lo and behold, it does drop 50%. And like you're like, all right, well, we just have to change how we planned our business. The volatility element of it is... I think that's the, like, I mean, I don't know how, where you guys think, but like, I, I'm not going to get into a dogmatic uh, crypto conversation, but I would say that treasury functions, i.e. the instruments that are highly liquid and less than a year should be of the predictable purchasing power variety. But mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's just the, the, the world we live in today. But I mean, uh, there's clearly a cult that has has grown around it, which is, has less to do with the returns. And and more to do with this kind of meme dynamic of like anti-establishment, let's call it.
0: Yes. I wonder if as we get back into the world, bit, like if Bitcoin is one of those things that we talk about because we're always online and maybe when we're less online and we like have normal conversations, we're like, oh, maybe I just don't, not necessarily debunking it, but just caring less. But um <laughs>
1: How many of your conversations lately have ended in, in talking about Bitcoin?
0: It came up last week in with uh, on the conversation with May. Bitcoin came up just in the in the podcast. In the real world, it never comes up.
2: It yeah. almost <laughs> never comes up for me.
0: This
2: um, with
1: the internet friends,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was on a Twitter Space last night that all they did was talk about Bitcoin, which I was. I, I mean, for me, these things are just fascinating. Because I see a lot of the in the conversation of like the conversations I used to have around. I mean, I was I was a bit of a gold bug. I'm not gonna lie, back in like 2006. So I, I see a lot of them have uh, have adopted a lot of the narrative around that 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 you can't control this. That you can't trust the the government to do this. There is a, there is a bit of a a libertarian tick to it that that Definitely. that that I I found interesting.
0: All right. I think we should having touched on our Bitcoin, I think we need to wrap I think that's, there.
2: Yeah, I think that's enough. Well, how about any 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 favorite stock ideas out of uh, out of Kareem?
1: Oof, are I'm you doing still... anything
2: in the stock are you doing anything in the stock market? Are you allowed to talk about the stock market?
1: Yeah, I mean look, I mean I, I have my, my personal portfolio. I mean, I I tried the, the way I think about it is I, I try to uh, really make big bets in in, in, uh, in in things that I really understand or I feel like I have an edge and by far, my biggest bet has has been Ramp, and focusing most of my times and, and effort on that. And for the most part, like in the stock market, I, I, I would try to just have like a, a diversified portfolio. Like my one big position has been uh, uh, Shopify. Uh, I'm such a big fan of Toby and, and the team there, and, and just like the engineering-driven culture and, and and the fantastic product that they've built. So that's the one that I mean. That's I'm been thinking, essentially a rocket thinking. ship. Yeah.
2: As, as Shop- someone who's shorted Shopify before, <laughs> and and been long Shopify before, I still remember when I got it. was like maybe three hundred. I mean, what is it now? Four X. Yeah, it's fifteen hundred or so. As Toby's been great. Well, there's no question that the team is fantastic. Uh, for me, it's all. It all. It had been at, at the end of last year, the beginning of uh, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. It just became like. I don't see AWS in it. I don't see it as a, I don't see it as an infrastructure SaaS in the same sense that Amazon is from the margins of that business. Mm-hmm. And that's been something where when people make the comparison, it's like you know it's baby Amazon, it's baby Amazon, it's baby Amazon, and the, it, the there's like a, a a return leap where you're just like you know at at the time you you would look at it and say you can't really connect the dots, but I mean, it's one of those businesses that without a doubt, COVID, you know, turbocharged, changed, you know, accelerated uh, and put on a much stronger footing. And now the Facebook partnership and so many other things that they're doing. I mean, I I, 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 nip, I nipped that short in the bud, like right right in the beginning of March, but still, when you look at some of those businesses from the pre-COVID context, you do kind of, I mean, it's almost impossible to do it today because like there, there's, there, there's such moving targets, but the execution is fantastic. I mean, I, I still remember yeah. 2017 when they were when they were well, what's his name I was giving them crap uh, Citron Citron
1: yeah, that's when I doubled down.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's actually you know what's his name had uh, we posted uh, Rami has the uh, the CEO of Zbuni, has written all of one article about a stock in his entire life, and it was to buy Shopify at 60. So I was doing the math and I was like, you know, he's 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 like he's he's about 25x. So yeah, yeah. you've done. You if, <laughs> if if you were doubling down, then you've done very well with your stock picking. Maybe uh, maybe I should ask you for stock advice.
1: I tried to like not do too many. I'm certainly not a trader. I think the uh, this cognitive load it takes is, is is too high for me. I'd rather uh, just focus on on what I can build. Fair enough. All right, Kareem. Thank
0: you so much. This has been a lot of fun having you on. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, best of luck as we come out of this environment one way or the other.
1: Anyway, yes, thanks a lot, bro. With you. Thank you, Akram. Thank you, Daniel. It's great right. chatting with you guys.
0: Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at @DanielShortman Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful, as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.